The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, I'm Anna Summers-Cox, founder, editor and chairman of The Art Newspaper. Welcome to The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast. The reason you're hearing my voice instead of Ben Luke's is because the first story broke after our podcast deadline. It's the news that Christie's Auction House will be selling the last Leonardo in private hands on the 15th of November in New York. It was painted about 1500 and is called Salvatore Mundi, which in English means saviour of the world. It's a smallish, bust-length depiction of Christ with his right hand raised in blessing and his left holding a crystal globe that symbolises the universe. Christie's is doing something no auction house has ever done before. They're putting it into a sale of post-war and contemporary art, where they're also selling Andy Warhol's picture of 60 reproductions of Leonardo's famous Last Supper. I'm joined in the art newspaper's offices by Martin Bailey, our long-term journalist, who will be giving us the background to the story. Martin, how rare an event is this? Well, it's very unusual for Leonardo paintings to come on the market. Um, there are actually only about 15 or so paintings which are firmly attributed to Leonardo, one of the greatest Renaissance masters. So it's a really big event. And do we know where this painting comes from? Well, we know the provenance from about 1900, uh, when it was acquired by the noted British collector Francis Cook. But at that point, it wasn't attributed to Leonardo. And um, Cook sold, it was sold from the Cook collection in 1958, but at that time it was thought to be um, almost worthless and it actually sold at Sotheby's for £45. And somehow it went to America, we don't quite know how, um, where in 2005 a consortium of American dealers, including Robert Simon and Alexander Parrish, bought it. Um, now, now that we know the picture is so important, there's been much more research done on the early provenance and it appears very likely that it was actually in the royal collection and was acquired by Charles I. And how do we know that it's by Leonardo? Well, the painting has been very carefully studied, um, both by, uh, well, initially by Leonardo scholars and more recently by the auction house. And there are a number of reasons for thinking that, or for uh, believing with, with a great deal of certainty that it's by the master himself. First of all, it relates to two preparatory drawings of drapery which are in the Royal Collection in Windsor Castle. It's also known from a holler etching of 1650. There are about 20 similar compositions, um, but this is by far the finest, and the technique is very much in Leonardo's style, and particularly the blessing hand. But I think the most important evidence that it's the original is that conservators have found evidence of pentimenti, or changes which the artists make, and most notably in the position of the thumb. So the present situation is that virtually all Leonardo's <laughs> scholars accept the painting, and if they did not, um, Christie's would be unwise to try and sell it. Now, Christie's have put an estimate of $100 million on it. How do you think they arrived at that figure? Well, what goes on at the auction houses is sometimes a mystery. I mean, if the painting uh, had been in perfect condition, it would have sold for more. Um, it's a religious composition, um, which might not appeal to some buyers. But of course, the Leonardo name will be an enormous attraction. And of course, it's 
a once in a lifetime, probably once in a century opportunity for someone who wants a really big name in their collection. And what do you think of them putting it in an auction with post-war and contemporary art rather than old master paintings? Quite frankly, I think it's a bit of a gimmick to sell it in a contemporary sale. Um, but in practice, it's really going to be an auction with one painting, the Leonardo. And Christie's is very likely to produce a special catalogue for the painting. And um, uh, buyers uh, will certainly hear about it, partly through our podcast. Um, so there'll be no shortage of people knowing about it. So I think really it's going to be a one painting auction. And um, it's interesting that the Leonardo is being sold with a Warhol series that is estimated at $50 million. And um, one wonders whether in 500 years' time Warhol will be as well regarded as Leonardo. I suspect Leonardo will face time better than Warhol. Thank you, Martin. And now we return to Ben Luke and the rest of the programme. This week, we'll discuss our first book of the month. The inaugural tome is Enlightened Princesses, a collaboration between Yale Centre for British Art in the US and Historic Royal Palaces in the UK, which focuses on three 18th century royals. The picture that has emerged gives a far greater share to women in the 18th century in the enterprise that we've come to call the Enlightenment. But first this week, we look at Trigger, Gender as a Tool and a Weapon, an exhibition now open at the New Museum in New York. It explores gender in an age of, as the museum puts it, political upheaval and renewed culture wars. It looks at how 40 contemporary artists are addressing fluid identities, even as the political debate around gender narrows and regresses. Sarah Hansen, the art newspaper's art market editor, went to the new museum to see the show and spoke to its curator, Johanna Burton. Uh, So, Johanna, could you talk a little bit about the title's double meaning? When we first started working on this show, um, it was quite a bit in advance of the major shift in the administration. Um, But as I think many folks um, would agree, these were not um, changes that came all at once. And in fact, I think Trump's election was the culmination of a a lot of things that were already kind of very much in in the making. When we decided to call the show Trigger, it was partially in response to the fact that um, as these changes were happening really rapidly at the center of a lot of core debates around identity and around political agency had to do with this very kind of contradictory um, sense of both wanting to carve out safe space and also wanting to have a kind of internal or also kind of relying on a sort of internal censorship mm-hmm. um, around content. So a kind of um, ironic double bind. Mm-hmm. We decided to use the word trigger as a title because it both named the elephant in the room and also allowed a way out of that being the the actual content of the show to acknowledge a moment in time where um, discussions around identity and all of its um, different aspects um, seems to be kind of negotiated very heavily within culture. Can you tell us a bit about the show's concept of gender? Sure. So uh, as somebody who has been really thinking about um, uh legacies and theories of identity from feminism to post-colonial theory to queer theory and watching those evolutions and those tangles between those different um, strands. I've been particularly interested in the way in which kind of emerging and recent 
um, theories, and actually I think artists here are really leading the charge, um, have looked at gender as a place where um, destabilization has become a really key element of um, of self-determination and, and finding a kind of agency in the world, while also acknowledging that um, gender is always a negotiation between an external and, and uh, internal force. Um, to me, there's something really interesting about not thinking about gender as the content of the show, but rather a kind of modality that artists are using to destabilize other assumptions and binaries. Um, so you'll notice in the show that um, it's not always explicitly and often not explicitly that the work addresses gender as content, but more that thinking through the lens of gender as something that is destabilizing and outside of immediate um, uh, immediately acknowledged categories allows us to look at all kinds of things differently. And mm -hmm. I think the aesthetics in the show are really key um, mm -hmm. for that. Can you give us a few examples of how that plays out? Sure. I mean, I'd, I'd like to talk about all the artists yeah, in the show. Course. There's not a single one who in various ways doesn't do this. I think a great example is Raina Gossett and Sasha Wurzel, who have presented a four-minute um, gallery. Uh, they've made a larger film. Um, it's about 20 minutes long. And for us, they've actually adapted four minutes of that film, which focuses on the legendary um, historic figure Marsha P. Johnson, who is known um, within both uh, gay, queer, um, and trans circles as a real hero and an iconic figure who um, brought a kind of visibility um, to trans politics at a moment when um, gay and trans um, communities had um, a different relationship. So um, it's a really beautiful object that on one side is the screen for their four-minute film, and on the other side it's a broken mirror that um, is symbolic of the moment that um, Johnson threw a shot glass into the mirror at the Stonewall and started um, the Stonewall riots. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of um, destabilization that happens both in the film, where they have actual archival footage of Marsha P. Johnson, alongside a kind of reimagined phantasmatic and, and fantasy-filled reenactment of Johnson's um, life by a contemporary act actress, um, and then on the other side with the mirror, you actually, as you hear the sound of Marsha P. Johnson, both in her historic and her reimagined self, um, you see your own reflection in the mirror and kind of contend with not only yourself but other people in the room. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a, a great example. Um, other examples, I think, are um, Justin Vivian Bond, who for me, and this is one of the great iconic figures in this show, has constantly overturned every assumption um, about themselves. Um, and I think there's something really profound about some of the artists in the show who've been around longer and continue to destabilize not only the assumptions that are made about any singular identity, but also seem to do so as a matter of course in their work. Um, there are, there are uh, other figures <clears throat> um, in the show as well. Uh, Vaginal Davis, Greg Bordowitz, Nalen Blake, and they felt not um, like historic figures to me, but about really crucial um, voices in the contemporary dialogue who happen to have been contemporary for a long time, um, and then alongside some of these younger artists who are, I think, equally exciting and in dialogue um, with their older colleagues. While she was at the New Museum, Sarah also spoke to Maria Bybakova. She is the chair of the Artemis Council of the New Museum, which helped fund the Trigger exhibition and has supported other shows there of women artists. Artemis Council is unique in the world of museum philanthropy in that it is devoted to funding shows by women artists and artists who identify as women. Um, can you talk a little bit about the need for this in the 
in the museum world? What, what were you seeing that uh, you thought needed to be addressed in this gap? Well, if you look at uh, all the solo shows uh, organized by museums across the United States uh, in the year 2015, I don't have the data for 2016 yet, but the number was 28%. So 28% of solo shows were given to women artists. That uh, seems to me uh, incredibly unfair, especially considering that over 60% of graduates of MFA programs are women. And uh, clearly there are a lot of women artists in the beginning of their careers. It's um, puzzling why so few of them are, make it to the national or international art world stage when it comes to museums. And one of the solutions that we are providing with the new museum is we're providing funding uh, for curators to realize their visions with regards to women artists. Now, money is a really important part of this subject because uh, every museum show that gets organized needs a certain amount of funding and financing, and uh, museums often have limited budgets. And frequently, artists need additional support to realize their site specific projects, commissions, uh, and new work for their museum shows. But that funding can often be unavailable. So the Artemis Council plugs that hole where the institution's budget for the show maybe was no longer able to support the artist's vision, and private funding wasn't available to do so either. We, as a group of patrons, believe that it is our role to enable and empower artists to realize the full vision of their projects. I think it's also worth pointing out that the new museum, which works primarily with living artists, is the, the partner for Artemis Council because it's, um, I think, both you and the curators, the leadership team at the museum have identified a need to fund these projects while the artists are still living <laughs> as opposed to uh, after the fact. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, legacy of the new museum and how that meshes with Artemis Council? Sure. Well, one of the things worth noting is that the new museum is not a collecting institution. It's an institution that engages in exhibition making and often commissions new work by artists, which is very important, and that it's different from many other museums that are more historically driven. Now, one of the reasons that's important is because every time there's a new exhibition or an artist is included in a group exhibition, that has an impact on her career. And so we believe that we are making a, a greater impact in the lives of women artists or artists who identify as women who are involved in the new museum because they see the, the fruits of their labor and our labor almost immediately as a result of these shows. Now, of course... We at the new museum uh, are also dedicated to showcasing historical women artists who may no longer be with us, such as Carol Rama in a recent show that closed in uh, uh, July 2017. But predominantly, the focus is on living artists. Trigger is at the new museum in New York until the 21st of January. Now, we're sticking with the theme of gender in our first book of the month, but stepping back in time to the 18th century and looking at three royal women whose contribution to arts and letters has, until now, been little understood and appreciated. 
I'm joined by Donald Lee, the art newspaper's literary editor for more than 20 years. Donald, first of all, who are the subjects of Enlightened Princesses? Uh, they are uh, three princesses from the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, first, Caroline of Ansbach, uh, who uh, became the wife of George II, and then Augusta of Saxe-Gotha-Altenburg, uh, who then married George's eldest son, Frederick, who uh, was Prince of Wales, but never uh, made it to the throne as he died um, at a fairly young age. And finally, uh, Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, uh, who was the wife of George III. Why did you choose this as your book of the month? For a number of reasons. I think, first of all, um, it's an important contribution to uh, history, um, particularly as the essays uh, uh, examine various aspects of um, of European and particularly English culture um, in the 18th century. Uh, and, of course, it is timely because this book accompanies the exhibition that is currently on um, at Kensington Palace until uh, the 12th of November. And third, of course, because it is about women uh, who, uh, while in this case of the highest uh, social class, uh, nevertheless have even themselves been under the shadow of what is predominantly male history. Charlotte's probably the best known to a wider public of these three women because she was married to George III and therefore has been featured in a in a major uh, play and film written by Alan Bennett called The Madness of George III. And therefore, there is a sort of public awareness of her character, even if she still isn't particularly well known. Yes, and of course, there was the great um, exhibition at the Queen's Gallery in, I think, um, 2004, uh, which uh, focused on the uh, kind of artistic um, uh, patronage of George III and uh, and Queen Charlotte, um, in which uh, she comes across as being certainly uh, his equal. Um, she uh, had a great deal to do with the organisation of the um, Royal Library then in Buckingham House, now Buckingham Palace, she, uh, too, had an enormous uh, interest in botany and worked with the, um, I think his name was Miller, who was the uh, head of uh, the uh, Chelsea Physic Garden to ensure that all the latest uh, discoveries from the New World uh, were also uh, planted um, in Kew. Uh, of course, it was probably through her um, influence that uh, William Chambers built the great um, uh, uh, pagoda in Kew and uh, she also employed uh, Capability Brown in various uh, projects. Uh, quite interestingly, the South African flower, commonly known as the bird of paradise, is named Strelitzia Regina after uh, Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg Strelitz. She was also right out of the top drawer of the noble um, and princely families of the Holy Roman Empire, as hers, the Mecklenburg Strelitz uh, clan, claimed their descent from um, a member of the court of Charlemagne. 
So tell me more about Caroline. Caroline's a very interesting case uh, uh, because she, uh, her parents died when she was uh, relatively uh, young, a child, and she was brought up um, at the Hohenzollern court um, in uh, Berlin, uh, where her, as you might say, uh, adoptive mother, Sophia Charlotte, uh, was the sister of, um, of George II. And there, um, in the Hohenzollern court, uh, she encountered a very uh, kind of liberal and certainly enlightened uh, atmosphere. And it was through that connection that she uh, began to be uh, educated. And when uh, she had married um, George II, when he was still Prince of Wales, and went to live in Hanover, uh, she became a close friend of the philosopher Leibniz. Uh, this carried over uh, when uh, she um, and uh, her husband came to um, England uh, because she became great friends with Sir Isaac Newton. Um, and he um, exerted a great influence, again, on uh, her way of thinking, uh, particularly in um, scientific matters. She was fascinated by... Um, physics and particularly about the refraction of light, of course, in which he uh, was um, uh, a major um, investigator and um, and indeed the discoverer of the prismatic nature of of light. And when, uh, as Princess of Wales, uh, she lived at uh, Leicester House in Leicester Square, uh, what is now uh, the Leicester Odeon. Um, she played host to uh, a great variety of of literary figures, including John Arbuthnot, uh, the great friend of Alexander Pope, and of course Jonathan Swift. Uh, she was patron of Reisbrack, the sculptor, and in uh, Kew and elsewhere, uh, she employed both William Kent and Charles Bridgman to design gardens. So she was a woman of considerable um, uh, intellectual and practical um, interests of scientific knowledge um, and, of course, a friend to really the leading lights of the age. Now, tell me about Augusta. She's probably the most sketchy of these figures. Is that fair to say? Yes, I I think so. Uh, simply because um, she her light is more reflected than than radiant. Uh, she herself was very badly educated, as were many uh, women who were um, uh, who were brought up simply as uh, marriage material. And uh, so when she when she was chosen by uh, Queen Caroline as the best uh, spouse for uh, Frederick, Prince of Wales, uh, he really married her um, without any without a second glance. He really was indifferent. He was more concerned, so some historians say, uh, to expand his income on the civil list by um, by having a wife. Um, and likewise, he uh, was more interested in his mistress than um, in her. He actually had his mistress appointed um, as her lady-in-waiting in order to try, try to 
mould her to um, his ideas. She was uh, Frederick fell out spectacularly with his parents um, and was barred from court, amongst other things, and often uh, used poor Augusta as a cat's paw um, in the battle. When he died um, at an early age in 1751, she was only 32, um, but she then lived for the next decade of George II's reign um, in relative obscurity. Uh, She emerged um, slightly more prominently uh, when Lord Bute uh, was appointed Prime Minister to um, her son, George III, uh, because he was a man of enormous uh, taste and influence. For example, uh, he built, or had uh, John Adam uh, build his great house at Luton Hoo, and was himself a botanist, an uh, in interest which um, she also shared, although to uh, a less expert degree. It seems to me that, one, from what you're saying, that these women are polymaths. They are very much a part of that Enlightenment idea of engaging with broad ideas across the arts and the sciences. Yes, certainly. I think there's there can be no question about that. And I think the other thing to be borne in mind is uh, that these three were not unique. Um, there were any number of uh, equivalent uh, women in equivalent circumstances in uh, elsewhere in Europe, and particularly in the um, courts of the Holy Roman Empire. Frederick II's uh, sister, for example, was a great correspondent uh, with Voltaire, with rather better, better results than uh, he had with the uh, French philosopher. And there was, of course, the uh, Princess Louisa Dorothea of Saxe-Gotha Altenburg, um, who featured in an online review um, uh, of the art newspaper by Joachim Whaley, the um, Regis Professor of German at the University of Cambridge, uh, who too was um, uh, very much an active uh, participant in the um, in the Enlightenment. With a greater, I think the Germans had a greater correspondence with the French than the English did with them, uh, for various uh, reasons, mainly uh, political. Certainly the picture that has emerged uh, gives a far greater share uh, to uh, women um, in the 18th century in the enterprise that we've come to call the Enlightenment. So um, it's good that it's the picture has been painted in in considerably more detail uh, by this book. And so why has it taken until relatively recently, and certainly with these three women until now, to have that much understanding of their achievements and their lives? Well, for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that uh, feminism has really only uh, kind of uh, taken grip since about 1970. Um, So there's a lot of territory that needs to be um, uh, reclaimed. And this um, this is one part of it. Uh, the other, of course, is we've had any number of varieties of history writing um, in the uh, in the 20th century, and I think the uh, time of cultural history uh, has been probably the most recent, and therefore um, these uh, three 
princesses, of course, belong to that uh, project as well as to the um, uh, feminist uh, enterprise. So I think uh, I think those are at least uh, two uh, lines of inquiry that might be followed as to um, as to their recent rediscovery. I mean, the simple answer, of course, is that women have been virtually written out of history um, when history was conceived of as primarily a matter of power and politics. Now, do these princesses have any purchase on life today? Uh, No, they're all dead. (laughs) Um, But I think, more seriously, uh, the purchase they have is simply to remind us uh, that British history cannot be read in isolation. Uh, Britain, in this connection, um, was deeply wedded, literally, uh, to the German states. People today, the masses, only when you mention Germany, all they know is the Second World War. And it's very important to uh, increase awareness of our deep links uh, to the Holy Roman Empire, to uh, the to our German cousins. I mean, I think it was a failure of imagination on the part of those who voted for Brexit to conceive that somehow we had we we were born um, almost parthenogenically, uh, without any reference to uh, our neighbours on the continent. We are a nation of immigrants, and I don't mean recently, I mean from uh, the time of the Romans and the barbarian invasions right through to this great 18th century culmination in uh, marriage of the uh, of the British with the German royal families. Donald, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ben. The exhibition Enlightened Princesses continues until the 12th of November at Kensington Palace in London, and the book is published by Yale University Press. A related international symposium will take place in London between the 29th and 31st of October. You can find out more at hrp.org.uk. And that's all for this week. You can read more book reviews in our monthly print edition, as well as online at theartnewspaper.com, and there you'll also find all the reporting from our daily issues at the Freeze Art Fair. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're feeling really generous, give us a glowing review. You can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper. See you next week. Music